How are you doing? You can participate too, you know. Okay. The mic won't bite you, but I might. So we just can't get enough of those bone-chilling murder stories, which is why those shows like CSI, Criminal Minds, flood our televisions every night of the week. And of course, we are fans of lots of uh, different murder podcasts and true crime podcasts. Yes, we are. I love them. And so we've had this idea for a while to focus on mountain murders because we live in western North Carolina. We are nestled here in the Appalachian Mountains, backed up against the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, the Blue Ridge Parkway, all right here. And there's a lot of murders. Yes, it's very beautiful here, but it could also be a very scary place to end up with a murderer. Yeah, well, you know, violence is nothing new to the rural mountains here. I mean, we have a rich cultural history in our region. Murders happen um, for years and years, you know. We've had this isolationist kind of culture for so long, I think, that uh, we've been so insulated that people maybe often take for granted that uh, those murders have happened. Yeah. Because we've been here. But, you know, mountain people kind of have a different way of looking at things. And, of course, there's all the stereotypes about, you know, the hillbillies and all that. But mountain people have this this different idea of justice. And they don't want to get the man involved. No. It's just sort of you take care of your own. Yep, take care of your own. And so that's been going on for years and years. And so I often wonder, like, how that ideology of vigilante sort of justice or what we call here mountain justice, how that plays into maybe modern-day murders in the area. Yes, it's also kind of a quiet area for the most part. So when uh, these really heinous murders happen, I think people are shocked. Yeah, and so this is our first episode. This one shocked the area. So bear with us. This is definitely... Um, a morbid story that um, is going to keep you locking in your doors at night. Yeah. I mean, I remember when this case happened. I, do I too. was in high school, and it really sort of changed my outlook on my home. Because yeah. being female and growing up here, you know, it was nothing for me to go off in the woods at my grandmother's house on a hike by myself. Even as a kid, you'd go spend hours and hours in the woods. And kind of after hearing this story, it really made me think about taking those trips, those little solo adventures out 
on my own. Yeah, I think it shocked the entire region, and uh, people were literally scared. They changed the way they thought after this murder. It's true. So do you want to get started here? Yeah, let's do it. On today's episode, A Murder in the Woods. So a federal jury convicted Richard Allen Jackson of using a firearm during and in relation to a kidnapping, sexual abuse, and murder of Karen Stiles. And this took place on October 31st, 1994, in the Pisgah National Forest near Asheville, North Carolina, which is really just a stone's throw away from where we are. Now, Jackson was a 26-year-old dishwasher. He was the adopted son of a prominent community leader, J.D. Jackson. And his adopted mother would later at a trial try to make a connection that his adopted sister had mental illness and would try to use that in Jackson's favor, uh, you know, to prove that he was mentally insane. And that didn't uh, quite go, you know, how she had hoped. And her name was Sally Jackson. And, um, you know, they were trying to... uh, you know, say like, oh, well, his natural sister has this mental illness that makes him mentally unstable. She had behavioral disorders, um, but the uh, testimony was was not allowed um, linking the sister's mental condition to Jackson's. And uh, they actually, during the trial, let Sally Jackson's testimony um, be rebutted by a, um, I guess, an interview that he had done for Fox News where he was talking and giving an interview and seemed very cognizant and aware of what he had done. So they weren't, you know, they weren't allowed to use that insanity testimony. But here's what happened. So on Halloween morning, back in 1994, Karen Stiles was a recent graduate of Western Carolina University. She was getting a degree or had gotten a degree, sorry, in therapeutic recreation. I can't seem to talk right now, so forgive me. Um, She disappeared from a trail in the Pisgah National Forest. So, of course, immediately a search was initiated that evening because she didn't return home. Her parents lived in Candler. There was no trace of her. They did find her car, however, still parked at the lot at the head of the trail. And her car key was found um, on the trail just about two-tenths of a mile from the parking lot. Now, the actual trail where Karen had gone out that morning for a jog is the Hard Times Trail. And for those of you from the area might be familiar, that's over in the Bent Creek area. And it's about a 7.9-mile trail. It's pretty heavily trafficked. So that was another thing I found interesting about this case is that that Hard Times Trail, especially now, very active uh, hiking trail, mountain bikers out there. I mean, this is not a secluded location. There are lots of people who use this. And it's at the Lake Powhatan Recreational Area, which is a really hot spot for locals tourists there's a lake there for swimming so you know she went for a jog on this trail which was very heavily trafficked and while she was out there gets snatched up and raped and murdered yeah that is kind of a a a crazy place for her to get taken from you know we have plenty of secluded trails where you're in the middle of nowhere by yourself but like you said that was very popular with everyone in the area and uh she i'm sure she felt safe on that trail every time she used it like everybody else did Well, so I guess what had happened was that she had, you know, was jogging on the trail and happened to, you know, pass this fella, Richard Allen Jackson, and he turned around and I guess saw the opportunity and uh, went for her. And like I said, you know, I remember this case. This happened in 1994. I mean, Karen Stiles was only about eight years older than me. Yeah. Of course, a college graduate. I was in high school. But I remember going to these trails over at Mint Creek That is where my cross-country team in high school ran. We had cross-country meets at Bent Creek on these trails. 
And so I remember just like right after this happening, going over there for, you know, cross country meets, for track meets and that kind of thing and being like really creeped out. Yeah. Because this woman's body had just been found in the woods like not long before this. God. Or even a year after. It still gave me, um, you know, anxiety to think about trying to run in these woods. Well, not just found in the woods, duct taped to a tree. Well, we're going to get into that. Body, but yes. Okay. Very scary. So here's some of the details. So she goes missing, and this was October 31st, so Halloween 1994. And it was about three weeks later, 25 days later to be exact, that her body was discovered by a hunter. Uh, I guess he was a deer hunter, and it was her partially nude body. She was duct taped to a tree. Investigators found a duct tape wrapper. They found a pornographic magazine and one spent Remington 22 caliber caliber rifle casing. And the autopsy later would reveal that Styles died from a single bullet wound to the head. But this is the part that you and I found so disturbing, is that she also had suffered 10 stun gun wounds to her body, and nine of them were inflicted within six inches of her pubic area. Could you imagine? So just, he was out to torture her. Yes, he definitely tortured her. Well, of course, investigators, you know, looked into it, recognized that duct tape wrapper, um, was a brand that was sold at Kmart. So when sheriff's deputies contacted the nearest Kmart store, which was only about a mile from the murder site, they discovered a receipt for a transaction that had occurred just days earlier, which would have been October 28th. And there was also on that receipt the purchase of a 22 rifle, a box of Remington 22 rifle ammunition, the duct tape, a flashlight, and some batteries. That's a murder so, kid. Yeah, a murder kid if I've ever seen one. <laughs> yes. So, obviously, Richard Allen Jackson, who, you know, the ATF form generated, um, you know, when you go to purchase a rifle, you have to fill out all this paperwork, revealed that purchaser to be Richard Allen Jackson, who is also, of course, convicted of this crime. So, he totally premeditated this. He knew at some point he was going to find an opportunity where he was going to commit murder. I mean, this was like not, oh, well, I'm just, you know, like a crime of passion. I mean, this was premeditated. Yes, he did. He went and got the tools he would need to kidnap someone and do what he intended to do to them, which is torture and murder them and but rape of, them. of course, this is like not very smart on his part. No. And I mean, you always hear the phrase like dumb criminal, stupid criminal. And this guy obviously was. I mean, he went to a Kmart less than a mile or whatever from his murder location. That's pretty crazy. I Pretty mean, stupid. Yeah. Thank God. Well, yeah. I mean, it almost, it was like he was making it easy for, you know, the cops to catch him and arrest him. Yeah, I guess sometimes they say these people want to be caught. So, but I wonder, too, with this premeditation and this planning, I mean, he went, as you said, and bought this murder kit. Was this something that he had done before? Good question. Like, where did this idea come from? That or, you're just going to go buy all these tools that, hey... Maybe one day I'm going to decide to murder someone. I'm going to need this stuff. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I don't know how that works. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know either. But um, he's just a sick person. Well, right after this, which would have been in December, um, Jackson was called into the Buncombe County Sheriff's Department for an interview. And after the officers advised him of his Miranda rights, he waived those and went ahead and answered questions for about three hours about his background, his whereabouts in the days surrounding the dates of Styles' murder. Um, when the sheriff asked him what did he um, do with that rifle 
that he used to shoot Karen Stiles. Uh, that is the only time, really, that Jackson decided that he needed a lawyer present. So up until that point, he had been very uh, willing to talk, waived those rights, you know, didn't want an attorney. But when he was asked about the rifle, that's when he said that he needed a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. So I guess he knew that, uh, you know, the hammer was coming down. So the sheriff then informed Jackson that he would not ask him any more questions. And uh, he says, you know, son, I know you bought that rifle and the duct tape at Kmart on the 28th of October. I know you were in Bent Creek on the day she was killed. And that's fine, but you need help. So at this point, Jackson sort of broke down crying, insisting that he didn't mean to kill anybody. I mean, come on. Yeah. You bought all the tools. Right. It was an accident. Yeah. You fucking didn't mean to do it. Well, anyway. So after the officers informed Jackson that he did not need to say anything, you know, because he had invoked that right to counsel, he stated that he wanted to tell the whole story and get it off his chest. Then he signed another waiver of Miranda rights. So this guy was told, you know, you've already asked for a lawyer. Don't say anything else. But then, you know, wants to get the story off his chest and then, you know, signs this thing, waving the rights away. And then he confessed. Fully confesses fully. with no lawyer. Yep. No lawyer decides to fully confess. So he says that he arrived at the park around 8 a.m. And he watched as Karen Stiles stretched and then walked down the trail. And after sitting for a while, he took the gun out of the back of his car, loaded it, and started down the trail. Now, here's a guy saying, I had no intention of killing her. Right. But well, I took the gun. But I'm me. taking a loaded gun after I've essentially been a predator after prey yes after i stalked her in the parking lot yeah yeah so he also took the duct tape the stun gun and a pornographic magazine in his coat pockets yeah it's pretty creepy because i don't know about you dylan but i know when we go hiking we love to load up our backpack with all the essentials we get some trail mix uh, you know, maybe we take a couple bottles of water, and you love to throw in those a copies cu- of um, jugs. Of jugs, yes. Jugs magazine. Well, you know me; I personally go for shaved, but <laughs> uh, whatever. So, um, Karen Stiles passed him on the trail. So then Jackson turns around, points the gun at her. So she takes the keys out of her shoe, and she tells him there's money in her car. He can take her car. So she thinks she's just being robbed, you know, by this random stranger, you know, on the trail. I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, being a female, I've gone into the woods many, many times. I've gone hiking. I've gone jogging. And I always think about that. Like, what would you do if someone approached you with a weapon and and tried something? Yeah, I know. I'm always weirded out when I'm on trails miles into the woods. But again, this was a very active trail, not deep in the woods. Right. And I guess my attitude has always been, you know, I'm just going to start acting like a crazy person and yeah. like fighting them to the death because they're probably, if they pulled a weapon on me, they're probably going to kill me anyway. Right. But I'm not going to let it be an easy thing for them to do. No, I would totally freak right? out on somebody. Well, she pleaded with him, of course, not to hurt her. And Jackson placed the duct tape over her eyes and mouth, led her to this remote area where he stood with her back to a tree. Then he duct taped her to the tree. Now, imagine how horrible that is. You're in the woods. You're all alone. This maniac is taping you to a tree. And if you've ever been duct taped, not that I have that often, but, um, I mean, it's, like, pretty impossible to, like, untape yourself. I know, like, in high school, we had this prank where we, like, duct taped someone to a chair. Right. And they couldn't get up. No, yeah. There's, like, no tearing through the duct tape. Oh, no. Duct tape could 
duct tape could totally render you immobile. So I guess once he places her against the tree and duct tapes her, the duct tape on her mouth had started to come loose at this time. And then, of course, Styles again is asking him, you know, please don't hurt me. So he tapes her mouth shut again. He rips off her shorts, you know, her underwear, and then he rapes her vaginally. And so Jackson's rendition did not mention the sun gum. Like he, you know, when he's giving this full confession, he wants to get it off his chest. He never once mentions that there was a stun gun involved. I wonder why. But the evidence was presented at a trial, and he was pretty shocked, uh, I guess, when they found out that, um, you know, that they knew that he had done this. But he had uh, taken that stun gun out, and he, you know, placed it just above her left breast, and then, of course, several times, was it nine times, in her pubic area. Yes, many as nine times within six inches of her pubic area. Yeah, so after he rapes her, he's torturing her with the stun gun. Then the guy moves away from where she is to go look at his porno magazine and then masturbates. Okay, so the tape over Styles' mouth has, has loosened again at this point, I guess, while, you know, Jackson's over in the corner whacking it to jugs or whatever. I, I don't know. And uh, she starts screaming because who wouldn't? Yeah, who Right? Would? You've been stun-gunned, essentially, in the pussy raped. a couple of times. You've been raped. Tied to a tree. I mean, I don't know. If somebody stun-guns my vagina, I'm probably going to be screaming a lot. I don't know. Sounds really painful. I mean, this is such a horrible situation, and I'm kind of making light of it a little bit, but not really. I mean, this is terrible. This is horrible. And so, you know, she's screaming. He walks up to her again. He puts the gun to her head, and he shoots her. And that's all it takes. Just the one shot. And she's dead, right? So then that afternoon, after, you know, he's had a joyful day, I guess, out in the woods, convening with nature and raping and murdering someone, he goes back to the Kmart, he returns the gun, and then gets a full refund. What the hell? Now, I love a frugal murder. You got to love that. Yeah. Maybe this dude can give us a, a, a list, some tips on murdering on a budget. Because, you know, I've often thought about that, like watching Dexter, you know, he's really invested. He's got the really nice, expensive knives. Oh, yeah. He's invested in all that expensive, heavy plastic sheeting. $10,000 a year in sheeting. I mean, right? So, like, (laughs) murder can be expensive. But this guy has found a way to do it, you know, as you said, in an economic fashion. So, he's, he's fiscally responsible murderer. Murdering on a scrubs budget. So, I guess during this entire confession, Jackson is crying. You know, boo-hoo-hooing. And the report of his confession indicates that at times during the interview, you know, the officers couldn't even understand, like, what he was saying because he was so upset, you know, and emotional and crying, you know, the whole time, just hysterically. And that he did repeat many times during this confession that he did not mean to kill Styles. And that's just bullshit. It's total bullshit. That's straight-up bullshit. He stalked her. He had the tools he would use to do this with him. Then had the fucking audacity to take the and murder then took weapon a damn, back to Kmart. Took the damn thing back. Like, what a fucking nut job, right? Well, a search of Jackson's home and cars, um, which was conducted, of course, with a search warrant, had led investigators to recover a functional stun gun. So he still had that on his, pro- you know, on his property, his person. He had a flashlight. He had a black ninja outfit. And a wrapper to an adult magazine. 
And they also found the partially empty box of 22 caliber rifle bullets. So this guy, I mean, it seems like he made a lot of plans initially, like going into, you know, this murder. Like he had it all worked out, but yet the wrap-up, the finale, like he wasn't too bright. No, he it didn't take him long stuff. at all to, to smoke him out. Yeah, in his house, I mean, it was like... It's like he had a big red arrows pointing the way. You, just, you might as well just hand them over all the evidence. Here you go, guys, right? But I didn't mean to. So Jackson was charged in Buncombe County with first-degree murder, first-degree kidnapping, and a first-degree rape charge. So when he was arrested, of course, he did waive those Miranda rights, and he confessed completely, as we mentioned before. So this plays a pretty important role in this case because, of course, the corroborating evidence was found at his home, and he did get sentenced to death here in North Carolina. As he should be. But a judge reversed the confession or, you know, said that the confession should be barred um, on an appeal and ended up, um, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, having a new trial and that kind of thing because I guess at some point, you know, he had asked for an attorney and then went ahead and confessed, even though they're saying, don't say anything else. Right. You ask for an attorney, but then decides he wants to confess, even signed a secondary document waiving his rights. Right. But a, a judge was still like, yeah, that's that's not fair. We can't use that confession. And that's crazy because I've seen other cases where obvious coerced confessions are right. upheld time after time, judge after judge. Like the making a murderer? Making a murderer or, or the... Um, the um paradise lost oh yeah the west memphis three yes yeah i mean come on and but this guy just because he's blubbering about the crime that he did obviously commit and uh they're going to throw that confession out right well the district attorney at the time was ron moore in buncombe county oh well that explains it well he actually you know he's come out you know in several interviews and has publicly said you know this was not something that he wanted to do he wanted this family Karen Stiles' parents, who are, you know, now older. And right. Had all this time, you know, their daughter's been gone. And I, I can't imagine, Mm-mm. you know, being You never parents. get over that. Right. Not only is she gone, she was murdered, tortured. And brutally, yeah. Brutally raped. Her last and moments on earth. left, discarded in this very public setting. I just couldn't imagine. Taped to a tree, left naked in the woods for animals, for who, whomever to find. I mean, it's just like the worst way to lose way a loved you one. Could, I just can't even imagine the the way as a parent you could even process that. You don't. I doubt you could ever. That's got to be a hurt that like, well, I don't ever want to experience. I mean, just terrible. So they had a little surprise for him even after that. Yeah. So then Ron Moore, of course, he said this was not something that he wanted to do. Um, he really wanted the death penalty to be in place. But instead of a new trial... Jackson ended up pleading guilty to lesser crimes with an agreement to serve 30 years. 30 years. Yeah. But then, of course, nobody told him, I guess, that he could face some federal charges, too. Yeah. And he did. And he was sentenced again. Go justice system. Yeah. Well, it's pretty interesting, I guess, because in the last trial, which would have taken place, I guess, in the 2000s, like early 2000s. Yeah, I believe it was around 07 or 08. Something like that. Well, okay. I don't know I why I was thinking about There was an been. appellant. Okay. Hearing at that point. Well, there was a detective um, with the, um, I guess, the Buncombe County PD, a female detective, that, um, 
made some comment to Jackson, like, we may be seeing you again on some other murder charges. Ah. Yeah. Well, of course, you know, a reporter heard this, I believe with the Citizen Times, and was kind of digging into that, what you mean uh, about this. And uh, there's this detective who had some theories that perhaps this was not Jackson's first murder. Well, yeah, like you said, it wasn't a, just a simple opportunity or something that happened all of a sudden. He planned it. He bought the murder kit. Well, yeah, kit. that's the thing that gets he me is that her. it's like if he had been out in the trail, seen this girl, grabbed her, like, you know, physically, like, choked her, strangled her, right. or bludgeoned her with a That rock. doesn't make it okay. No, but I might believe that it was just something you... This was more of a murder of opportunity. Right. That he didn't go out that day intending to murder somebody. Or like he's truly messed up in the head. Itself and okay, I'm going to take advantage of the situation. Right. But to have constructed this kit, to go wait in a parking lot, to watch this girl, to yep. stalk her. Very calculating. Yeah. Very planned. And that just throws the whole mental Which, that thing. That makes me feel like, okay, that's oh, somebody man. who's maybe done this before. Yep. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, who knows? Well, one of the cases that um, this detective kind of insinuated that maybe Jackson was a suspect in was Pamela Murray. Now, Murray was this industrial engineer. She was 23 years old, and she was abducted from a parking lot uh, at the Asheville Mall. And this would have been Valentine's Day, 1987. And Murray's body had gunshot wounds to her head uh, and the back, and she was found in this deserted road in a wooded area in Oteen, North Carolina, later that day. And I remember that case. Uh, yeah, I'd never I heard mean, of that. I mean, I remember one. this girl being abducted from the mall, and then they found her, you know, dead. I mean, I was a kid when that happened, but, I mean, I remember, like, my mother being in shock about this because she's like, oh, my gosh, you know, we, we go to that mall all the time. Like, what if somebody did come up to us with a gun? Oh, you know, I mean, it was like something that really had women in the area running scared. Because we just didn't have that kind of thing. I mean, we, I'm not saying we didn't have murders, but we just didn't really have stuff like this happen it was, yeah, it was, very no. often. So no, when it, it was did, it was very area. shocking. Very I shocking. mean, we lived in a community that probably up until what, maybe 10, 15 years ago, people didn't lock their doors. No, I'm, there's Never still pockets of people, you know, No, I know people who don't even, they don't even have a house key, like a physical yep. key for the lock because they're like, oh, we don't ever use it. So we yep. don't even have a key to the house. Just go on in. I mean, yep. I've heard that more than once. Of course, I've also heard that from some relatives who are laying in wait in the house with an arsenal of guns. So should an intruder or someone just break up in the house, they're probably going to get... Uh, yeah, they hope somebody will break in the yeah. house so they can <laughs> shoot the shit out of them. Yeah, that's that's what we call mouth <laughs> Use some of that damn ammo. Around here. So getting back to the case here. So another unsolved murder that was pretty similar to the Karen Stiles murder was that of a woman named Beverly Sherman. And she was a 17-year-old convicted prostitute, and she was last seen January 20th, 1987, getting into a car behind the Asheville Civic Center. Which, if you're from this area, you probably remember back in the day that, like, downtown Asheville was not like it is today. No, it wasn't quite as friendly. You remember, I mean, like, downtown Asheville, 70s, 80s, boarded up. Yeah. There were prostitutes. Down there under the bridge around Broadway. Lexington. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was where, like, the ladies of the evening were. I mean, I remember that. And there was also that really seedy hotel, motel, yep. that was right, like, right the behind the Civic Center. Yep. And if you're familiar with Asheville, that's what's now the U.S. Cellular Center. Yep. But at the time, it was the Asheville Civic Center. 
there was this shitty motel right off the highway, and it was literally like the pay-by-the-hour kind of place. Yeah, it was pretty gross. And drugs and just super skanky place. Well, it looked gross from the street. I'd never been there. Well, I hadn't eaten. Well, I'd heard stories <laughs> from people. <laughs> My so, friend told me. Exactly. <laughs> Hey, I was too young to be uh, procuring <laughs> sex workers at that time. Me too, but uh, it's certainly been gentrified and is different now if you visit Asheville. Oh, it's a that completely whole area different. Is different. Yeah, I think now that hotel is like with high some high end, end and uh, you know, there's brewery on every corner. And, yeah, and uh, you know coffee shops. But uh, back then, um, but I do find it interesting. You know, they're talking about this uh, victim of someone's victim here, but I like how they have to put in convicted prostitute. In the description well right that's it, which i mean that that can lead to some evidence of how she was you know why she was preyed upon and things like that but it's funny how they always got to make sure and label the women well they really do and i mean i guess i see as you're saying i see that twofold i mean one it's like okay she was a prostitute and we all know that a lot of murderers yes, serial killers they prey on that community they target sex workers yes they and do drug addicts because mm-hmm. they don't have like family right. really relatives, or any recourse with friends. the law or anything if they kind of go up you know they go missing oh well they're transient i mean there's just not a lot of nobody cares um merit i guess to their disappearance right which is sad that we see these people and and other killers like i know robert hansen in alaska i mean he described these women as their throwaways yeah and sadly that is kind of how our society views them it's true so beverly sherman you know Probably, I mean, I'm guessing at this time behind the Civic Center, knowing Asheville in the 80s, probably hooking, right? Probably. Gets into a car, and then she was killed the same day by somebody who shot her in the head. But her body was not found until April 26th. Wow. So she's kidnapped in January. Her body's found in April. So that's a couple months. And... The Styles case, I mean, even the detective is saying this, this does not look like somebody's first offense, that it's too organized, it's, you know, it's too well planned out. Right. So I'm thinking, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But then again, here's this guy planning out this elaborate, where I'm going to get all these weapons, I'm even going to take the weapon back to Kmart, get my refund, but then just leaves like this trail of evidence. He's like the Hansel and Gretel of like murderers, right? He's going to leave his little trail of breadcrumbs. It makes you wonder... How he pulled off these, if he did, allegedly, possibly, pull off these other two murders, if there was that same obvious trail and it was just, you know, police work, you know, some somebody didn't pick it up. Right. Or if he just got lucky. And you're right, it's alleged. I mean, there's really it, yeah, nothing total, saying that total, he was involved in these other two, but I guess at the time when they started looking into cold cases, these two, fit the profile. Murray and Sherman, were two cases that were unsolved and kind of had the same. Taken from one place. Found dead in another place. Gunshot wound. Yeah. Caused their death. I mean, and so what makes the Styles case a little different is that he didn't, he didn't like shoot them and then, you know, shoot Karen Styles and then take the body to a different location. I mean, right. he let her out into the woods, tied her to a tree. Right. And just left her there. Yeah. Um, I don't, maybe. Is he alive still? Do we know? Yeah. He's still he alive. Is. See, don't you love the death penalty in this country? And I checked with the North Carolina Department of Corrections, and he's listed there as an inmate, but it Sweet. says he is located out of state. Oh, really? So he is in a um, you know different facility, not in the state, you know, prison system. So 
which makes me think, okay, well, there were um, some federal charges, so he's probably in federal He may prison. be in federal custody. But just doing a quick search, I was not able to find exactly where he's being housed. That's amazing. You know, I, I, I don't, you can be for or against the death penalty, but if it's going to be in place, I believe that, you know, people shouldn't be allowed to make a lie for themselves for 10 or 15 years after they receive said penalty. But that's what happens. So you lived in the area at the time, and you remember as well this case, right? Oh, yeah. The Karen yeah, it was a big deal. Very big deal. I actually, uh, my cousin lives not very far from Bent Creek. So people were really freaked out. Yeah. And scared. And like you said, uneasy for a very long time after that. Yeah. After her body was found. Well, and being a female, I mean, you know, growing up, as I've mentioned, it was it was pretty scary. Yeah. And then, I mean, fortunately, in this case, they, you know, got the guy fairly quickly, quickly, you know, or I could imagine if they never found a guy, this never, you know, community never recovering from this and always been wondering if that guy's out there to do this again to somebody. So while we've been talking here, I have looked in the federal inmate locator, and it seems that uh, Richard Allen Jackson is uh, on death row at the uh, U.S. Penitentiary, pen, I can't say that word today, Penitentiary at <laughs> Terry Hope, Indiana. Oh, okay, we found him. So he is in Indiana, and, uh, you know, it says death sentence. So, I mean, he is, I guess, just hanging out. Yeah, I said we get started today. Waiting to die. Hmm. I guess at this age, he's, you know, he's 49 now. Wow. And so he was, you know, 20-something when this happened. Isn't that, that's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. So it's not really a death sentence. Let's be honest. Right. It's, uh, you know, you can go make your life in prison, you know, figure out how to get by in prison, which you can, I'm sure. Get used to it. And you get to live on. I don't get that. Yeah, so he was 26. So, I mean, on and off, he's been in jail essentially for 23 years. And, yeah, there was some issue with the, you know, the retrial, that, you know, the idea that they were going to do that, the appeal. Oh, the appeals. But it's like, okay, so he's received a death sentence again. Right. And, you know, you're just housing him in this prison. Yeah, we're taxpayer money. Are we just like waiting for him to die or what? Uh, Yeah, I don't don't understand. Which, of course, that gets us into a whole argument about, you know, the death penalty. That could be a whole nother show. It could be. (laughs) <laughs> but anyway, that was our first episode. Again, a murder in the woods, and we've been talking about um, the death of Karen Stiles and the murderer Richard Allen Jackson. So, thanks for checking us out today, and we'll be back with more true crime right here from Western North Carolina, um, probably in the next couple of days. Yeah, more mountain murders because there is a lot of them, and it's seldom talked about nationally. So, thanks, Dylan. And thank you. <laughs>